Hello and a very warm welcome to our online event, Europe's Refugee Crises, Where Are We Now? This event is hosted by the LSE European Institute and 89 Initiative and is part of the LSE European Institute event series, Beyond Eurocentrism. My name is Dr. Mamit Bambra. I'm Research Officer at the LSE's Religion and Global Society Research Unit and Research Director for Migration at the 89 Initiative for Belgium. And I'm very, very pleased to be chairing this event today and to, and to welcome in our panel. Before we begin, I do have some housekeeping announcements. For those of you um, using Twitter, the hashtag for today's event is LSE Eurocentrism. Our event today in terms of format will consist of presentations from our speakers followed by discussion. There will also be an opportunity for you to submit a question um, using the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. Questions will be submitted to myself and I will then put them forward to the speakers. I'm very happy now to introduce our panel in order of speaking. Firstly, we have Catherine Willard. Catherine has been the director of the European Council of Refugees and Exiles since 2016. ECRE is a pan-European alliance of 108 NGOs in 40 European countries working to defend the rights of refugees and displaced persons. We also have Lucy Maiblin, who is a political sociologist. Lucy's research focuses on asylum, human rights and policymaking and the legacies of colonialism. She was recently awarded the Philip Leverhulme Prize for her research achievements in the area of asylum and migration. We're very happy to welcome Masuma Torfa. Masuma is the co-founder and directing member of Female Fellows, an NGO that is working on the integration and empowerment of migrant women in Southern Germany. Masuma grew up in Afghanistan and is currently a PhD researcher on forced migration and refugee integration at the University of Hohenheim in Germany. Lastly, we have Heaven Crawley. Heaven is Professor of International Migration at the Center for Trust, Peace and Social Relations at Coventry University. Heaven is also the director of the UK RIS GCRF South-South Migration Inequality and Development Hub. So before I start um, this discussion, something that we've all been mindful of in the run up to this um, event is how do we make space for other voices in this discussion? And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that our um, audience, as well as our um, speakers, will think about how do we ensure that those people who are directly impacted in, in, in their lives by these issues of displacement and, and their stories are brought into these discussions. So we don't always focus on necessarily the academic and policy um, part of this um, issue, but the everydayness of, of, of these issues and these challenges facing people. So um, to start the discussion, I'm very, I'm very happy to hand over to Catherine and Catherine um, would be the first person to start and then we'll move on to the rest of the panel. Great. Um, thank you very much, Dr. Bambra. And it's a great pleasure to be with you all today. So I'm going to give an overview on the main changes that we see since the political crisis of 2015. And I've got four main areas of change. I should note, though, that these changes are really, uh, they really involve exacerbation of existing trends rather than radical shifts or changes in direction uh, that result from the events of 2015, 2016. And um, there is continuity going back uh, 20, 30 years in terms of policy. And the, we, we talk about the political crisis on um, refugee issues or the political crisis in Europe on asylum and migration. 
uh, avoiding, as I'm sure many others do, the term the refugee crisis, um, since these were very much crises of Europe, um, crises of European politics and crises of European identity. The first change is a, a reduction in the rights of refugees in Europe and a shrinking of protection space in Europe. Since 2015, we've seen legal changes that focus on limiting the number of people offered protection in Europe rather than on making asylum systems function. Um, there are changes to legal frameworks at national level and proposed changes to EU asylum law with packages of proposals launched in 2016 and last year in 2020. And these include many different features, such as reductions in the right to appeal, even though a review or an appeal is a normal part of any legal process. It's not something specific to asylum. We see harsher approaches to status determination. So, for instance, in the proposed increased use of safe third country concepts, and we see restrictions uh, in movement. We also see in practice a restrictive uh, uh, approach and a failure on the part of the European Union in particular to respond to violations that are taking place where legal obligations existing in EU and international law are not being respected. Um, there's also a, a, a trend that we find rather more worrying, which is a certain politicization of courts. So, When the political environment on these issues has been hostile, we've tended to rely on courts to defend the right to asylum in Europe. Um, we're seeing, particularly at the Strasbourg Court, a certain more restrictive approach to interpretation and a number of rather worrying decisions in key strategic cases, including cases where we intervened. Um, so I would say none of this is new, however. And um, so we should see we see these trends going back much um, before 2015. There are what has changed to some extent is that the interior ministries that pursue this strategy and this approach have been able to count on the support of heads of government because of this sense of crisis on this issue. And um, there's also this sense that it became an existential crisis for the European Union itself, which meant that certain countries that were previously rather more progressive or moderate were pulled into a more restrictive position because they believed, uh, in our view, wrongly that the EU itself was at, at threat. And that's for this country here, Belgium, um, I would argue that that's a, possibly a, a, a case, the case in point. Um, There's a certain irony in all of this approach. The restriction and the attempt to limit the number of people arriving is based on the belief, again, perhaps mistaken, that European countries could come to agreements on solidarity and responsibility sharing if only people were restricted from arriving. But of course, if, if nobody arrives, then to whom is protection being offered and uh, um, who is benefiting from that solidarity that supposedly will uh, arrive? There's a sense that the conflicts among the very deep and bitter conflicts among different European actors, states um, can only be resolved if Uh, people are prevented from arriving. And this is often justified by the argument that most people arriving are not refugees. 
Um, in fact, our analysis of the statistics shows that the majority of those arriving are in need of protection and do get a positive protection decision if legal processes are followed through to the appeal and review stage. And just today, again, I was in a discussion where a senior member of the German government misrepresented uh, the decisions by referring only to first instance decision making. Um, and so there's that sense that this can be justified because people don't have protection needs. In fact, they do. It's much more complex. And um, a second change that we note is out outsourcing of responsibilities to other regions by Europe. Um, the EU-Turkey deal is the epitome of this approach. It's considered a, a success because uh, Turkey prevents people from leaving from Turkey. And that's led to an impetus to try to replicate that model. And that in turn leads to a diversion of external funding and a distortion of external and foreign policies. Often this doesn't work. The conditions in Turkey and the reason that Turkey agreed are very particular um, and also actually very damaging for the relationship with Turkey. But there are great opportunity costs through pursuing this kind of approach. And it may even lead to more displacement because we see deals done with at times repressive governments that are, the, are themselves the source of displacement. Um, we would say that um, the accession and neighbourhood policies of the EU are particularly at risk at present. Globally, international law has not changed. The status quo holds. The Global Compact on Refugees is also a status quo agreement. But the global protection system is put at risk by this policy of outsourcing. The third change uh, I'll mention is a sort of paradoxical Europeanization. So on the one hand, there has been the debate that Europe has, the EU has been unable to respond. But the EU is held responsible for the crisis. Um, public opinion is very interesting, showing that people don't consider in general across the EU member states, they don't consider that migration is a challenge for their countries, but they consider that it is a challenge for the EU. So that means that they see uh, the responsibility lying there and the EU has tried to act. Um, we also see a kind of Europeanization in the sense that there's a new interest in EU foreign policy from member states that have really not been bothered about it before, but now want to try to use it uh, to facilitate return or to prevent people moving. So my final point um, in terms of changes is a more positive one. I think in recent years, we've seen that the opposition to an anti-asylum and uh, restrictive approach, uh, the opposition has been consolidated, it's been galvanized and it's increased. Um, in Europe, we see NGOs, volunteers, activists, professionals. We see increasingly affected people themselves, refugee advocates, refugee-led organizations. But we also see outside Europe, uh, opposition, for instance, public and political opposition in Africa um, and elsewhere. So as an example, we've published a whole set of papers from African analysts that look at the impact of EU policies in their countries. Um, and we'll host a discussion on the Gambia next week, um, if I just plug that. But there's real mobilisation um, against what is perceived as a narrow European-driven agenda. 
Um, for NGOs, specialist think tanks, academics, and even to some extent the media, there is quite a strong, uncompromising and quite united resistance to some of these changes. And that serves to some extent as a counterweight. On the other hand, we do see deep divisions in institutions, in governments, um, and in agencies. So some of the restrictive proposals are blocked because of divisions on that side. And we also see that public opinion has actually become more positive towards immigration in the last couple of years uh, for a whole variety of reasons, including COVID. And that's the case except where the extreme right um, dominates government. So it's not even their presence in a coalition, but it's the domination that means that public opinion goes in and remains in, or remains in a negative direction towards immigration more widely, and towards refugee protection within that. Um, it, I would also say that there's an irony here in that the, the, the less the issue is in the media, um, the, the, the less uh, problematic things happen. Um, so it's an issue, unlike many other political issues, where we're not necessarily looking for attention, but looking for working solutions and alternatives um, outside of the glare of media attention and their um, alternatives can be put forward. And I'm going to stop there and happy to go into more detail in the discussion if there are questions. Thank you, Catherine. Lucy? Thanks. Thank you, Mamet. And what, what an honour really to be included in this panel of impressive women. So thank you for inviting me. I think what I'm going to say is quite complimentary, really, to, and echoes many of Catherine's words. So my first thought when I saw the title of this event when I was invited um, was to wonder what was meant by the crisis. So the events surrounding the Syrian refugee crisis, which became visible to Europeans in around 2015-16, but began earlier and is ongoing, that was a crisis and is a crisis for Syrians, but it didn't need to be a crisis for Europe. Um, and yet those events did to come to be narrated, of course, as we can see in the title of this event, as a refugee crisis for Europe. Most Syrians fled to neighbouring countries. The proportion of Syrians fleeing to Europe by percentage of the population at the height of the crisis was 0.25%. And for Lebanon, it was 20%. So in other words, the European refugee crisis so-called, involved the arrival of people seeking asylum from war and persecution who together constituted 0.25% of the population of Europe. Most countries resisted burden sharing. So what happened in 2015-16 in Europe was really a failure of hospitality. And this failure of hospitality is no surprise to those of us with knowledge of Europe's history of refugee reception, which Catherine um, pointed to. Because I've only got a few minutes, I'm going to um, make a brief point linking all of this back to the 1951 Convention on the Status of Refugees and then extremely quick, quickly sketch out some broad alternatives. So the 1951 Convention came in response to the displacements caused by the Second World War within Europe. In that context, people who had been displaced had found that they had rights only as a consequence of being a citizen of a particular state. If that state persecuted you or cast you out, you lost, in the words of Hannah Arendt, the right to have rights. 
So the 1951 convention was meant to be a solution to this terrible situation. The world's powerful states agreed a suite of rights that people fleeing persecution would now have and duties that signatory states would also have. And they did this in order to protect refugees, ostensibly. These rights include the right to cross a border without appropriate travel documents like visas and the right to apply for asylum in a host state and have a fair assessment of your application amongst other protections. But the 1951 convention was limited to European refugees only. And this is because the colonial powers argued forcefully that colonized peoples were not ready for human rights. And this was in spite of strong and vocal objection by recently independent countries like Pakistan and India. Um, but the right to asylum was not granted in those context, contexts or extended refugee rights weren't extended there. So it was with a new protocol in 1967, which was devised in the context of decolonization and increasing demands for expanded rights for non-Europeans, that refugee rights were then expanded. But to be clear, the exclusion of non-Europeans in 1951 was an explicitly racist exclusion. While the colonial powers were willing to introduce this right um, to include Jewish Europeans, they did not see colonized peoples as full humans. And this is because the European empires were based around a racial schema in which black and brown citizens of empire were thought of as inferior, as backward, as exploitable, as expendable. Their lives were simply worth less than European lives which brings us quite swiftly to today. So we're now in a situation in which some of those populations who were purposefully excluded from refugee rights in 1951 are seeking asylum in Europe today. And those colonial assumptions live on, I would argue. The measures that we see pursued by European countries today to limit access to the right to asylum are very far from the spirit of this convention, but often just sit this side of legal. So they fulfill the letter of their commitment, but not the spirit of it. And again, this is because the colonial logic lives on. Examples of this include paying foreign powers to quarantine refugees outside of Europe, criminalizing those who help refugees and carrier sanctions. And I'm sure you know, but just to explain, carrier sanctions are fines for airlines or ferry companies if somebody boards an airplane without appropriate travel documents. So you get the airlines to stop people boarding a plane to your country to claim asylum. And in this way, you don't break international law, but you certainly violate the spirit of it. So if you've ever wondered why people pay 10 times the cost of a plane ticket to cross the Mediterranean in a tiny leaky boat, carrier sanctions are the reason. So the policy creates um, the crisis. It would be, of course, unthinkable to scoop French or German citizens up in the sea and indefinitely detain them in squalid camps without proper access to medical care or due process. It would be unthinkable to imprison fishermen who saved drowning French and German citizens in the sea because you would prefer more to drown to send a message to other people from those countries not to make a particular journey. But these things are done to Kurds and Eritreans and Syrians because their lives are thought of as less important. Um, they're more readily detained, abused, drowned and impaled on razor wire. This is the reality in Europe. So a recent effort to boost commitment to refugee rights, which um, Catherine mentioned, the Global Compact on Refugees, which came after the Syrian crisis, also floundered 
in terms of proper action to focus attention primarily on the needs of the displaced rather than host states and says little about the exclusionary impulses of wealthy states as contributing to refugee crises. And in part, this is because this underlying set of assumptions remains in many powerful donor states, including in Europe. So what would an alternative look like for Europe? First, it would be underpinned by a genuinely anti-racist vision of human equality. Second, it would be a collaboration between states, not on punishing people who are seeking asylum, but on supporting each other to support them. Third, it would be a linking of asylum policy with labour migration policy, since Europe has a huge demographic deficit and therefore a desperate need for immigration. And fourth, it would involve a recognition of the economic benefits of both immigration and public spending on it, as Peo Hansen has outlined in his amazing new book, Modern Migration Theory, which I recommend um, to everyone. So I suppose my takeaway point in this extremely brief um, talk, kind of um, bite-sized talk that I've given, been given the opportunity to give is that we're stuck in the exclusionary lo logics of the past, I think, but we don't need to be. A different asylum policy is possible, but it's out of reach while these kinds of logics continue to dominate the, uh, thinking within Europe. Thanks. Thanks so much, Lucy. Masuma? Yes, thank you very much for the invitation. And it's an honor to share the panel with the distinguished panelists, Catherine from ECRE, um, the um, policy advocacy and advocacy for the refugees and asylum seekers in Europe is well known to all of us. Professor Crowley, whose research is well known to me and I think to some of us. And um, it's an honor to also get introduced to Dr. Lucy and the rest of the ORGA team. I would like to also attempt to answer this question by referring to the title. And I'm happy that that was not a surprise to me alone and the rest of the colleagues also somehow referred to that. It's um, the Europe's refugee crisis. Um, we might pause and ask ourselves this question if there is um, a refugee crisis in Europe. I would go a bit deep into this to say that the term refugee crisis is very misleading because it actually does not refer to the crisis that made people flee their countries of origin. That actually should refer to that. But instead it refers to the number of the arrivals here in Europe, which is not a crisis at all. And I think if we um, do some fact checks, there are, you know, um, like the, the percentage of the, the total number of the refugee arrivals, the percentage of the world's refugees, if we see arrived in Europe, they're under 10%. And if that's compared to the total population of European Union, it's 0.6% based on the statistics from the European Commission, which is less than 1%, a bit more than half percent of the total population. How could that be? You know, if we look at numbers arrived here, it's again not a crisis. So I think I myself personally prefer not to use the word uh, crisis together with the refugees and asylum seekers, uh, at least in Europe anymore. Yes, and um, if we talk about the crisis, I think we should refer to the countries of origins. In Afghanistan, for example, on daily basis, there are people losing their lives, civilians, civil servants, students, teachers, journalists on daily basis. Their bombs 
on daily basis in Afghanistan. One of the touching examples that's not far back ago, it's two weeks, almost two weeks ago, the, the targeted killing of almost like 100 plus innocent schoolgirls in Dashtibarchi, the capital, Kabul, in Afghanistan. So these are the, the crises. And there are tens of um, hundreds of people losing their lives in Syria, in Somalia, in other Middle Eastern and the rest of the world that could be referred to as crises, as the countries of origin of the refugees, not the Europe. So coming to um, the, 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 the crisis, what could be in Europe, it could be, uh, it was also somehow touched upon by other colleagues, political disagreements, the lack of willingness to cooperate, the lack of solidarity at the European Union. And that could be, it's the, the, the reception management, for example, at the Greek islands, the pushbacks from Spain, Italy, and the rest of the, um, the countries like Greece, they could be referred to as catastrophes and crises, I would say. And um, where are we now? The we, they're the different actors. We can refer to different actors at the different levels of the European Union, like the EU level, the national level, and the grassroots local level. To me, uh, working with the small NGO, working for the empowerment of refugee and migrant women, as well as the local, locals together, because that's the strategy that we do not only focus on refugee and migrant women, but we do like shared and joint projects uh, of integration and empowerment of women together with the local citizens. So the grassroots level there, um, the, the people um, like us and the colleagues and the committed team and over in our team, over 300 plus motivated volunteers, they are working on refugee empowerment on daily basis. They do not see any crisis. And they're also, um, they're also um, you know, the statistics also show that there are 9 million people who, um, volunteers who have supported refugees are in Germany alone. And there is, the surveys also show that the, uh, an absolute majority of the German population still will come receiving refugees, which do, they do not see that as a crisis. They see that as human, um, a humanitarian situation and the responsibility of countries like Germany, for example, to receive them. So um, what, what have in the last five years, what have these actors achieved? Um, the, if you check the national level, I would just give Germany as, as an example, what we see, you know, the capacity of the reception um, um, of the countries individually. They have developed this reception capacities, integration policies, their development of new integration policies, involvement of very different actors, cooperation initiatives, the role of um, cities, private sector and civil society. That is something that was not in the history of some of the countries, including Germany, I think it is also in, in, um, um, valid for rest of the EU member states who are receiving asylum seekers and refugees. If we look at the uh, recent official figures from the German labor market, uh, German labor um, agency, so more than half of all refugees of working age who arrived between 2013 and 2016 are in employment now. 
and majority of them are working in skilled professions, while another 44% are working in unskilled professions. So this itself is somehow what, when you look at the, the facts and figures, they still say that their successes achieved by different organizations and different member states, Germany as the major recipient of the refugees. So, and if you um, check the, the civil society, their incredible engagement of civil society more than any time before. And the academia, you see there are examples of, um, uh, of the academia, the, the presence of them we have in our today's um, um, panel as well. More research on refugees in Europe is done, um, is done um, ever in the history today. So integration policies, the actors and the, the challenges and opportunities specifically on different countries and on different ethnic groups, such as Syria and Afghanistan, there are things that are uh, under um, work in different universities and research institutes. And the role of the, um, the role of the civil society, one important thing is the local community refugee and migrant led organizations. They are being active um, more than um, ever you see, especially during this health emergency crisis, actually the, the volunteering local community organizations who have been active during the hard um, health emergency situations have been the migrant and refugee-led organizations who have helped them not only at the, you know, um, the grassroots level practically on daily basis, but also have raised their voice at the policy level to the Brussels. So these are the things that could be as um, you know mentioned as achievements of the last five years. And the involvement of uh, one more actor is the private sector, um, which is um, also important. I think, I don't know if it is in all um, different countries, but in our city, for example, there's so different, um, several initiatives that are supported by the private sector, by business sector. The empowerment of refugees initiatives done by refugees for refugees. So these are uh, these are the examples that um, that could be mentioned. I will stop here and I will be happy to answer if there was any question later. Thank you so much, Masuma, for those really important insights. Heaven, um, over to you for the final presentation. Thank you, Mamet. And yes, it will be an actual presentation, I'm afraid. So let me just share my um, screen and, um, and I'll begin. Actually, before I begin, just to say a few kind of introductory comments, I guess. And again, reflecting very much what other people on this panel have said um, about the kind of history of where we come from and how that's reflected in this kind of contemporary um, situation that we have. I think you know, it's really important to, to look at what's what's happened within Europe, but not in terms of, as Masuma says, not in terms of there being a, a crisis of refugees, but a crisis of, of politics and a crisis of identity, as Catherine has, has absolutely said as well. And I think, you know, when, when we did our research with the Mednig project, when we were very much engaged with um, speaking to migrants and refugees as they were arriving in 2015, and understanding the context of those decisions to come to Europe, you know, two things were very clear. Firstly, those that came to Europe are a very tiny percentage of, of refugees in the world, as we, we all know, that's well known fact for those that want to, to hear that fact. Um, but also the kind of drivers of, of that movement are very much embedded in things happening outside of Europe, but some of those things Europe is directly involved in, such as, for example, the support given to abusive 
um, regimes, for example, and, and the European policy is very clearly oriented towards exclusion uh, while simultaneously supporting regimes that are, um, you know, in, in directly violating the rights of not only their own populations, but, but refugee populations and the government of Sudan is the obvious example of that. So I think that's a really important context um, for my presentation, really. And I think the second point, just by way of, of introduction, is again, the point that was made at the beginning by Manmit is the importance of including refugees and migrants in these conversations, because you know, so much of the Eurocentrism of uh, European policymaking is then reflected in how others then talk about refugee issues without actually engaging the populations that are directly affected. And the very convoluted um, title of the project that I currently am, am involved in is looking specifically at South-South migration. And I think, you know, shifting the gaze away from Europe is, is sometimes what's needed to better understand what it is that's going on um, in other contexts and to escape some of the Eurocentrism of the current political debates. Having said that, I'm now going to focus back into Europe because that is the nature of, of this um, discussion, but specifically to focus on the, the, the impacts of COVID-19 and the pandemic on the politics of refugee protection in Europe, which, um, as others have said in this, in this panel discussion, has very much exacerbated or accelerated existing trends. I don't think for one minute um, this is new, what I'm about to say, but I think it's really important to, to bear in mind how COVID is now being used to, to sort of enhance some of the things that already are being used by European states to exclude others from protection. And um, just in terms of, sorry, I'm just trying now, of course, try and get my slides to, to move and they don't want to for some reason. Um, hmm, interesting. I'm not sure why my slides are not moving and I may have to just ab abandon them as a consequence. Ah, here we go. So just first of all, to say by way of introduction, and this is very much what others have said, that refugee protection has always been deeply political. Lucy talked about it in terms of the kind of racist construction of a refugee and the exclusion specifically of those outside of Europe. Um, but this symbolism of refugee protection has, has, of course, increased and shifted as people have engaged with um, migration issues in different ways. And even in what we are calling you know, a crisis, we, we saw very much the differences of different states within Europe in terms of the, the politics of protection within Europe itself. So Germany was accused of throwing open the borders of Europe and it's very gendered the way in which that then became a, an attack specifically on Angela Merkel. Um, Greece and Italy were accused of neglecting their obligations. And, and then of course, Macedonia agreed to open up borders with, with Greece in order to speed up their own EU membership. So the kind of aspirations of EU member states or aspirational EU member states then played out in the way in, in which the, the, the crisis was responded to. But by talking up the threat of migration for more than a decade, or indeed 20 or 30 years, as Catherine says, Europe has not only found itself really ill-equipped to deal with um, this situation, but also has ended up lashing out at fellow and emerging member states because the kind of differences between those member states has become very clear. And I think what we see with COVID-19 is effectively similar processes taking place. So, COVID-19 is very much not the great equaliser, as some have claimed. Indeed, as Antonio Guterres has said, COVID-19 has been likened to an X-ray revealing fractures in the fragile skeletons of the societies we have built. And to build on the kind of boat analogy that we often refer to when talking about migration across the Mediterranean, while we're all floating on the same sea, it's clear that some are in super yachts whilst others are clinging to drifting debris. 
So I think that what the pandemic has done is essentially to expose the existing inequalities and also amplify and deepen them. So the effects of the pandemic, as we know, are racialized, they're gendered, and they're disproportionately affecting those that are living in poverty, who are not only at greater risk of getting infected, also carry the brunt of the economic fallout. So what we're seeing is not only widening socioeconomic inequalities within as well as in countries, but that within those contexts, those who are living in precarity already are losing out, uh, regardless of whether those countries are defined as, as rich or poor. So I think what we're seeing is that refugees and other migrants sit at the intersection of the racialization, gendering and poverty-related consequences of, of uh, COVID. And in the European context, we can see that happening in particular ways. So, for example, the border closures that happened immediately following the pandemic have actually not been lifted, uh, as you might expect. They're, they have clearly been opened borders um, since April 2020 when UNHCR did their research. But the reality is, is that even at that time, um, a number of states, 57 identified by UNHCR, including many in Europe, were simply not making exception for people seeking asylum, even though um, there was a consensus within um, the UN system that there absolutely had to be um, allowances for those people who were nonetheless forced to move in, in search of protection. We've also seen COVID used as an excuse to suspend asylum procedures uh, for those refugees um, able to uh, reach countries uh, prior to the pandemic and living in very poor uh, living conditions, particularly um, Greece, uh, which is a situation which, of course, is, is nothing new, but is is ongoing. And we've also seen that refugees are disproportionately impacted due to their marginalized socioeconomic position in virtually all countries within and outside Europe. And so some, while some of those impacts might be sort of understood as unfortunate side effects of the pandemic, um, there's a, that's a pretty generous interpretation of what's going on, frankly. I actually think that what's happening is that states are using the pandemic to, uh, to uh, continue to do what they had previously been done, been doing, and also using the pandemic to say that their first priority should be the health of their own populations, and that somehow that then excludes them from responsibility for either marginalized populations within their own context or those that might need to enter those countries in order to seek protection. And this is, this is a photograph from the, the, the new uh, camp that was built in, in Moria following the, the fire that took place last year and the conditions uh, are appalling, frankly, and no one is really in any meaningful way um, interested in addressing some of these, uh, these conditions, including the fact that the transmission of COVID in those contexts is of course more likely to increase. So I think it's, what's also clear is that, that states are effectively um, not only using COVID-19 as a, a pretext to evade their responsibilities for refugee and international law and to introduce uh, more restrictive policies, um, but they're also presenting the needs of refugees and other migrants as a problem, if you like, which governments can't be expected to handle in the context of the pandemic. So we're seeing on the one hand, European states saying our priority is the safety of our own populations and we can't be put at risk uh, as a consequence of COVID, but for example, through border closures. But also we're seeing that that fear that's associated with with migration and has been historically associated also uh, with disease is now being weaponized and migrants in some contexts are being blamed both for the spread of the virus, but also used um, as scapegoats by politicians who've been exploiting 
the pandemic for political uh, mileage. So, you know, examples from the from the outset of the pandemic included Hungary blaming Iranian students for the arrival of COVID-19 in, in, in Hungary and, and using that as a pretext to deport uh, Iranians. Um, Italy closed its borders to refugees in full last year, arguing that ports can't be classified as a place of safety due to, due to COVID-19. And since that time, thousands of refugees and migrants have been held on quarantine ships off the coast of Sicily. Now, of course, Italy has been trying to prevent the arrivals of people into its ports for, uh, well, not just for the last five years, but actually uh, long before that. And so this, it seems to me, became used as a pretext for justifying that on the basis of COVID being um, both, the, the, both the risk of people coming with COVID, but also this argument that somehow Italy wasn't safe because of COVID meant that they could justifiably hold uh, refugees uh, off, offshore. Um, Greece suspended its asylum procedures in March last year after Turkey opened its borders, and again in May, blaming COVID-19 for the decision to suspend procedures, when in fact uh, at, at this time you know, things had absolutely changed. Um, so we, we see, um, again, the use of COVID-19 to justify suspending asylum procedures. And I think the new pact on migration and asylum is, is interesting but for a number of reasons, not least the fact that it includes provisions for the suspension of asylum procedures in times of crisis without necessarily defining what a crisis might be. And so I think we, we are seeing, as, as Catherine pointed out, um, the kind of exacerbation or acceleration of what was already happening but increasingly with COVID-19 being used as somehow the justification for that. And, and again, here's another image. This is of, of people being held on boats off the coast of Italy. I live in Italy ordinarily, um, and we hear very little about these boats, but we know that they exist. Um, Catherine may be able to say more about them, but I think it's very interesting that, um, as Masuma and others have pointed out, I mean, there is actually uh, more support for refugees and, and migrants more generally and more positive um, kind of opinion around these issues. But interestingly, some of these, uh, some of these stories are being, being kept entirely out of the press or, or rather other stories are being prioritised. And the things that would ordinarily, in other contexts, have been seen as totally unacceptable have become accepted as something of the norm. So I think um, I think the politics of this is very clear, but they're absolutely not new politics. Um, but the, bring, the coming together of, of these, um, these narratives around the fear of, of the health consequences of migration with this, the fear of migration narrative has, has shifted and changed some of the ways in which um, the crisis of various kinds are being used to um, exclude refugees from the protection to which they're entitled. Thank you. Thank you all so much for those insightful and detailed presentations that I think are very complimentary. And um, what we'll do now is we'll have a, um, some discussion. Um, and also I'd like to remind everyone that if you would like to ask a question, please do so using um, the function at the bottom of the screen. I have a question for Masuma actually um, to start off our discussion. Um, Masuma, I was so interested to hear about the work that you do at the grassroots level and how important all of that is. You talk about um, supporting refugees and refugee empowerment. And I think um, the audience will be really keen to, and I'm very keen to hear the sorts of um, things that you do with refugees and how you achieve empowerment and your particular experience of, of doing that work. Yes, thank you for the question, yeah. We at uh, Female Fellows, we actually started with 
making tandems of a migrant and refugee women with uh, a local. So we call the newcomer and local tandems. So that's how it is called. We try to um, to find a partner for, for a, a woman, a refugee or a migrant woman, mostly they're in reception centers. We started in the emergency centers actually when um, almost five years back now as a small project and then that grew up to an association. And now we are working in um, three, four different cities, uh, mostly in Southern Germany in the state of Baden-Württemberg. So um, we are, um, I'm myself based in Stuttgart, the capital of Baden-Württemberg. We are bringing um, the women together. They meet, usually that was the, the idea was prior to COVID that they meet once every week. And then they are supported somehow in on daily um, work, daily their daily lives. And actually, the idea is not that the refu the, the local woman will be supporting the newcomer, will be helping. It's somehow learning process from each other. It is that they are the local citizens. Some sometimes they they do learn. They are supported um, by the refugee and migrant women who are here. And um, we are doing monthly workshops. They are the self-defense workshops. They are the intercultural workshops previously live and now online. So these are mostly what we do. But um, that's the grassroots work that you asked about us. But we are trying also to, um, to take part in the city discussions that's on the, um, at the policy level. We are also a member of ECRED at uh, Brussels level, trying to also um, bring the voice of migrant and refugees, not only um, them, but also the women more specifically at the policy level. Thank you so much. And I think I think even the work that I've done around minority women in particular, those sorts of encounters can be extremely powerful in fostering, you know, commonality and, and dialogue. So thank you for sharing those insights. So um, I have lots of questions, but I'm going to ask the other panelists if you've got any questions for each other, um, and then we'll move on to the Q&A from our audience. So does anybody have anything that they'd like to ask um, um, one of the co-panelists. I, I have a question. Uh, for Masuma, I think your work is so inspiring. I'd be really interested to know um, if your organisation could change anything within Germany of the context of the situation of the people that you work with in yourself in refugee reception. What would it be? What if you could get the ear of Angela Merkel? What would you yes. Thank you. Thank you for this very interesting question. Actually, we are trying on some um, integration policies specifically fitting to women because they are generally now um, women be, um, left behind. So the problem is that the general um, the, the integration policies that the services that are for the refugees, they are the same for all everyone. But women, sometimes they mostly um, with our experience and the work that we do, we see that the women need additional, sometimes the additional support because they are taking care of the children. They are, um, they do not, they cannot attend the, the usual um, integration services provided by government. For example, a woman who's pregnant and gives birth to a child is left in the reception center or where she lives for the uh, duration of almost two to three years. 
and they do not get kita places for their children for another few years. So that is the problem that they are left behind. And no one really see that that as, as a matter, but that is a, a challenge. And you know that the life of women, especially specifically women for integration of the new generation of the newcomers in the European society is of very specific importance and attention. So that is what we are trying uh, to, um, so far, unfortunately, no, um, no success, I would say, at the policy level, any change, but they are supporting programs for women, for example, under which we are um, working. There are also additional support from other actors in the city. They are trying to um, give you know, additional courses, the timing of the courses, sometimes in the evenings, sometimes on weekends, there are additional you know, volunteer support for women not to um, be you know, left behind for a very long time period. So that is what actually I would wish and um, the, the specific women-centered integration policies for, for refugees and asylum seekers. Thank you. Thank you, Masuma. Does anyone else have any questions that they'd like to ask each other? If not, we'll move straight on to the Q&A. Yeah. Okay, so we've got some really interesting questions um, coming through from our audience. So we'll start with one from um, Ewan from London, uh, who asked, what impact do the speakers believe the recent series of alleged serious misconduct at EU front Frontex will have on the treatment of migrants and their fates if returned to Libya? Should there be a more direct involvement of member states in cooperation with the UK and various UN agencies? Catherine, thank you. Uh, yes, yeah, so let me jump in on this Frontex uh, question. Um, I, I think the eventually this whole set of scandals will, it should, but I think it probably will eventually lead to the resignation or the sacking of the director of Frontex as well it should. Um, we're in a situation now where there's investigations going on by the European Parliament, OLAF, the anti-fraud uh, office, uh, the European Ombudsperson, as well as litigation and what's being exposed by the media. Um, the part of the difficulty is that Frontex is managed by the member states as an EU agency. So its management board is composed of the EU member states um, with the commission present as well, but no representative from the European Parliament. So in the long term, one of the changes we propose is changing that management board. Um, I mentioned that because what Frontex is doing follows, unfortunately, the strategy that is um, uh, is supported by many countries, which is prevention of arrivals at all costs. Um, I think, though, even within that strategy, there are decisions that lie with the management of Frontex and the responsibility is there. So, for instance, um, ECRE and others recommended the um, addition of these fundamental rights officers, given the expansion in Frontex's mandate and role as a sort of accountability mechanism to counter some of that increased power. And they simply haven't been recruited. So that's a management decision. Um, 
I, I would just add as a, a, a supplementary point, given the background of the speaker, uh, the speaker, the person asking the question there. So many of these um, violations and um, uh, actions at the borders are justified by this reference to tackling organised crime and to ending smuggling. But anybody who works on those issues sees the myths in uh, that argument. Um, many of these restrictive approaches actually increase the operation of transnational organized criminal groups, and they actually benefit. And we see also more danger, more and more dangerous organized criminal groups becoming involved. Um, and, and indeed, a collapse in the distinction between smuggling and trafficking when um, different kinds of groups get involved. The point is that push factors mean that people are, have to seek protection in Europe and they, refugees have no choice but to use smugglers. Um, so I, I think questioning this approach and then justifying all kinds of actions on the basis that it is tackling uh, organized crime or tackling smuggling um, has to be questioned. Thank you, Catherine. We have another um, question here from Hanul Cho, who's in Korea, who asks, do you think that the pandemic is negatively affecting NGO-led search and rescue or other missions? And I think I think we could probably have a bit more of a general discussion here about COVID, because, uh, you know, you've all, you've all, several of you have talked about the different ways that COVID has impacted various aspects of, of this issue. So, um, can we start with just maybe thinking about uh, this particular um, issue of search and rescue missions and how COVID has impacted that? Heaven? Thanks. I mean, there's a couple of questions that refer to, to COVID, including one on the, the sort of health of, of migrants and refugees living within Europe. I'm not sure that I'm well placed to talk specifically about the the NGO search and rescue efforts beyond the fact that we know that the criminalization of search and rescue efforts that Lucy referred to in her presentation is an ongoing challenge, but it's being pushed back on because, you know, the, this, uh, the, the problem is that uh, the, the organizations that have been involved in this historically have, have been basically criminalized and then a kind of COVID on top has never to be limited the possibilities of what they're trying to do but many of them are continuing to do that work the problem we have i think is a bigger one which is uh, the pushbacks from europe essentially so what we're seeing happening in in libya now in particular in terms of the large quantities of, of pushbacks um from the from the region from the mediterranean back to libya basically funded by the european union and member states i mean this is the more pressing issue and i i don't know that that's necessarily tied directly to covid um, but it's certainly, I think, using COVID as a sort of, you know, a, a, COVID has been very much taking up lots of people's attention for good reason in many contexts. And it, it certainly detracts from uh, attention being paid to these issues, let's say. And on the other broader issue of, of that impacts on, on migrants and refugees, refugees and migrants more generally in Europe, I would say there's two that are obvious. One is the impact on livelihoods, which we know to be an issue globally. But imagine if you're you know, struggling in the context of COVID ordinarily, and we all have been for various reasons, but you have no papers, no way of accessing 
um, any state support that might be available in the context of the pandemic, certainly no furloughed uh, wages or whatever that might be available to people in, the, in, in certain areas of employment. So that's an issue. And the second issue is um, access to vaccinations which we know to be problematic, again, for people without paperwork. And again, you think about migrants in Europe. I'm a migrant in Europe. I live in Italy. Um, I'm a privileged migrant in Europe, for sure, and I'm white, which definitely helps. Um, but I can't get it. I can't, under Italian law, you can't easily get access to immunizations if you're a migrant. Um, and I think that is the, the case for many migrants in Europe who are simply not able to access what's available in terms of the the vaccination programs. So whilst there's huge inequality in access to vaccinations, for sure, globally, there's also inequalities within Europe. And I think these inequalities are writ through everything to do with what we're talking about. Inequalities in access to protection, inequality in opportunities to make a livelihood, inequalities in access to health, and nobody is talking about inequality. And for me, in the context of migration, that absolutely has to be a focus. So Sorry, slightly off the question, but I think, you know, the, the, the idea that there's a kind of like Europe has one model and everything outside of Europe is, is different. I think there's actually there's really significant inequalities within Europe uh, related to poverty, related to gender and related to race. And migrants, of course, as I said, are, are at this intersection often of those three strands of difference. If you like. Lucy? Yeah, just to follow on from that, I think. It's clear, and you know, Heaven gave a really good outline of that in her presentation, that just thinking about the context of, of people even ar arriving and being allowed to disembark, we live in this permanent state of exception where we're permanently in an exceptional context where exceptional, really, you know, dark things that should not be uh, ordinarily undertaken are. Um, but COVID just sort of um, gave that turbo boost sort of thing. So even when there was not a case of COVID on the continent of Africa, uh, boats with African um, nationals were not allowed to dock in Greece because of the risk of disease. And that kind of um, the trope of, of migrants bringing diseases is a really... Uh, really long-standing one even though all of the evidence that we have suggests actually that uh, uh, the health of migrants de declines upon um, living in reception um, in host states in part because of access to healthcare, even where these are some of the best healthcare systems in the world that can cope with any sort of um, uh, pro health problems that people might have. So, yeah, I think we've seen these measures which have meant that the right refugee rights of or the right to apply for asylum or enter a state have been effectively paused during the pandemic as an excuse. And then um, for people who have been here, just as Heaven said, um, all of those kinds of inequalities. I mean, in some in a number of countries, the, there has been a relaxation of rules so that um, irrespective of the papers that you have, you can get vaccinated. But in the context of the broader hostile environment that people have been living under, would you then present yourself and give any authority, any information about you? Like, why would you trust them? Um, because um, that is clearly not going to be in good faith. So 
yeah I think like everything about the context has been given a sort of um a turbo boost by COVID and I think that's to be expected but the concern is that every time there is a perception of one of these exceptional crises a suite of new um curtailments of rights and rolling back of rights is introduced and you never really get them back it's like once something is taken away it then takes like 50 years to win it back sort of thing so I think that sort of long-standing um legacy is is like a great concern to me at the moment thank you um, I think we'll move on to another question now. Catherine, there's um, one for you specifically that says from Rosa Vaughan, who says, Catherine, could you please explain a little bit more about the politicisation of the courts? Yes, uh, thank you, Rosa, for that question. And um, let me briefly say that we see this at national level and at European level. At national level, if you look at asylum decision making, there's such divergence across the EU um, that it's very hard to um, find an explanation for that divergence without going to the question of political interference and judicial decision making. So the in terms of the protection rates, the percentage of people of a particular from a particular country of origin who will be granted protection and how that varies from one member state to another, um, and then the types of protection that people are awarded. Um, all of that is hugely, uh, varies hugely. So for instance, the same, uh, with, with no objective grounds for the, that are linked to the cases themselves. Um, for Afghanistan, it's particularly noticeable. So the same applicants may be, have a 3% chance of getting protection in one member state compared to 98% in another, even though the facts of the case are similar. Um, and as we've examined this and we just can't find any objective reasons why that would be the case, which might relate, for instance, to the different kinds of cases, different types of people, categories of people going to a particular country. No. So it lies in either incompetence in decision making. It lies in things like the absence of respect for procedural guarantees, such as access to legal assistance, removal of um, appeals levels, but also political direction and political interference in decision making. Um, that's what we've called the asylum lottery um, at, at Cray. So that's one element. And um, the other element that I referred to is um, a few worrying signs from the Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. Um, as ECRE, we're involved in litigation being both support for individual cases and support to individual asylum lawyers all across Europe, but we're also involved in strategic cases in Strasbourg, Luxembourg, UN mechanisms and highest national courts. Um, and we've seen that at the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, there have been a number of decisions that are rather problematic. I'm referring to the Ilias and Ahmed decision and ND and NT. Um, in both cases, there are different, more alarmist and lesser alarmist interpretations of those two decisions. But it's certainly a m move away from 
let's say, previous jurisprudence at the Strasbourg Court uh, in some senses. The argument is is made that that reflects a certain politicization of the Strasbourg Court, which can occur in different ways, of course, through the appointment of judges by the countries uh, that are state parties to the convention um, and by other means of pressure and debate. So um, that's uh, what I meant by that point. I'll, I'll leave it there. Thank you, Catherine. Heaven? Yeah, just, just to build on that point, and I, I think that that's absolutely right, but I think, again, it's nothing new. We've seen the politicisation of, of um, determination procedures uh, way back in history and in the recent, relatively recent past, the sort of last two decades. There are very noticeable um, ways in which countries have granted or not granted protection to to individuals from particular states reflecting their own particular political interests or positions. So um, the differential um, decision-making rates that Catherine refers to are absolutely appalling at the moment, but they have historically, I think, always been an issue that many people have um, raised concerns about. I know when I was doing my research in the late 90s on um, decision-making and the differential rates, that was even an issue back then. And for example, in the UK context, you saw incredibly different rates of protection for Iraqi nationals before and after the UK's involvement in that particular conflict. So, you know, having sorted the issue in Iraq, it was then deemed that refugees from Iraq didn't need protection because the British had been involved in, in resolving the, the issues that might impact on them. So I think um, it's definitely the case that those, those politics exist, but it's not the case necessarily that they are entirely new. I think they're um, a feature of, of European policymaking for, for a long time. Um, do we need a, a sort of social movement to respond to this refugee lives matter, for instance? Um, I, I would say actually that it's not hopeless, despite the very negative and critical things that we've all been saying. Um, from our perspective at, at Crate, uh, many of these issues, it's, it's like a perpetual struggle, like many questions of uh, struggles for rights and um, human rights of particular groups and uh, groups that may be uh, less powerful uh, and marginalised. And in some senses, it's maybe not even as contentious as other rights struggles because with the, the question of asylum and refugee protection, I think in Europe, a lot of people realise and remember that anybody can become a refugee. Anybody can be a refugee. It's within the histories and background of many people um, within Europe and, of course, many countries within Europe in recent history and, and in people's memories. Um, so it's not to say that there's necessarily reasons for optimism, but there's reasons not to give up and consider that th these kind of actions and activities are, are hopeless. Um, in terms of the suggestion for a campaign, um, our view is always that every possible action needs to be taken. Um, so that, as ECRE, we work on litigation, on advocacy, on communications, um, 
as many activities as we can with our members across Europe. And I, I think certainly the element of campaigning and people uh, standing up in the way that we've seen with other social movements is extremely important. And that's not sort of something that we would lead because as a sort of Brussels-based um, human rights network with a particular focus, sometimes public campaigning by uh, certain NGOs or certain actors is even counterproductive. And I think it's crucial to have self-advocacy, but I think it's also crucial in public campaigning that we have some of the different voices that are not necessarily as public as they have they could be, such as the private sector, um, such as people, I don't know, celebrities, sports stars, others um, that speak out rather than perhaps what we might call um, the usual suspects or those with a clear interest in what is clearly a deep conflict um, within Europe. So um, I, I take the liberty, if we have uh, Dr. Bambra um, back, I'll hand back to her or perhaps to the other panellists for their question, uh, response to questions. I think this is really interesting um, question. I haven't actually looked at the question, but you drawing attention to it, Catherine. And I do think um, it, in the context of the UK at the moment, uh, I do not feel optimistic at all. But I think the idea of being hope, hopeless is um, like nothing would be achieved. And, and I have been thinking about these kinds of questions in this um, quite uh, serious moment that we're at um, with UK asylum policy at the moment. And I think to some extent, it does require, like the answers are not going to be produced by academics or on one panel or by one person in one conversation. And if you think about um, spaces where there genuinely has been a complete transformation of the way that we talk about things, like through the feminist movement or disability rights or sexuality, those things have come through generation long mobilizations and conversations and arguments and protests and kind of and the kinds of multi-platform um strategies that Catherine is talking about uh, just now so I think to some extent we do need some big <laughs> mobilization where the whole way that we think and talk about refugee issues is transformed um but at the same time I'm conscious when I say that, that there are already loads of people doing loads of things all over the place um, and everywhere that you find the worst abuses by states and by the EU, you find amazing people who give up their time to, to, to rescue people, to man alarm phones and um, to start people like Masuma starting um, new NGOs and movements and support networks and everything. So uh, we, it's probably already there, but probably in order to actually transform um, the whole conversation, a, a longer and bigger transformation of the way that we talk about things and broader across populations probably will have to happen. I have to hope that that 
transformation can happen even beyond my lifetime because otherwise you can feel hopeless I think I think that heaven wants to say something on that I do but I'm conscious that Sarah is now chairing so Sarah is it okay if I add on to that question or that point thank you yes please. I mean I, I thanks Sarah I mean I just um wanted to say something about kind of attitude formation and the kinds of ideas of, of movements. I think absolutely what Lu Lucia and Masuma are saying is completely right. The, a lot of the, the things that are most effective come, if you like, from the bottom up. I mean, the reality of attitudes towards refugee issues and migration more generally are incredibly and inherently contradictory. You know, many people are migrants, live with migrants, um, have friendships and relationships with with people with migrant backgrounds as their next door neighbors, they have a, an often very positive personal experience of migration and refugee issues if they come across them. But the political narratives and the lack of political leadership at the national level and at the state level, the interstate level, of course, in terms of the European Union, um, has really um, brought out the worst in people's understandings of these issues. And it's partly because they don't understand the issues. And so, you know, we've tried over the last 25 years really to try and give people more factual information, thinking that this will somehow, you know, mean that they're more empathetic, sympathetic. But the truth is that the refugee issues are really, in my view, a touchstone for many other issues and concerns that people have um, to do with the precarity of their own situations, often their own precarious employment situations, their own feelings of, of insecurity of one kind or another. And, and the kind of whole whole issue of refugeeness and migration sort of feeds into those and is deliberately fed into those by politicians, of course, to mobilize support for particular initiatives which don't really get to the heart or the cause of why citizens are feeling very insecure in their own lives, essentially. So it's a kind of, it's a scapegoating, but it's a bit more complicated than that. And this idea of a social movement is something like Black Lives Matter. The issue with that is that, of course, refugees are also often Black. And that's the, the problem with many of these social movements is they tend to treat refugees as so they somehow outwit other movements for social justice. And in truth, what needs to happen is that these, you know, that, that social justice impacts on everybody. And it, you know, it, a lack of social justice or opportunities for social justice is partly why people are kind of turning in on one another. And it's also what politicians are playing up to. And of course, the media um, loves to exacerbate through its own representation of the issue. So, I think the kind of separation out of refugees from broader issues of, of racial equality, of, of political equality, of gender issues, you know, this is about social issues, social justice writ large. And separating out refugees leads to, in my experience, lots of individualized campaigns or quite specific movements that actually then miss out on the connections between the kinds of inequalities and marginalization that multiple groups experience in society. So um, he, I think he has a bit more extended questions, but I think this is already something we can post our panelists about. And I mean, Masumi also spoke to this, the reason that people are leaving their homes, that people, the reasons people are leaving their countries, um, is there a failure from the EU, from the UN to address these? Please feel free to um, just unmute yourselves and just contribute to the question if anyone's got any uh, suggestions for responses. Yes, perhaps I'll jump in if uh, if no one else is. Um, I think I, I just read all through Simon's question, and I think he's spot on with this analysis. This um, 
and part of our alternative to the current approach is uh, lies in foreign policy and changing foreign policy. And I, I think that there are things that can be done to tackle the causes of forced displacement. And that includes uh, none, none of which are simple and, and none of which are short term. And that includes looking at how to create security for people in countries elsewhere, focusing on human security uh, in the long term. And it, it involves uh, creation of livelihoods, uh, proper uh, development policy, just trade policies and so on. And, and I think there's a huge body of evidence about how, what role external actors can play in those contexts. And very often the role is actually to support local actors, to resolve conflict, um, to, 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 to build and deliver services for populations and so on. And un unfortunately, what we see now is almost the opposite that external policies, European external policies, but also the UK's external policies, are at risk of being captured by these very narrowly defined migration control objectives. So rather than investing in these efforts to try to uh, understand and tackle the reasons for forced displacement, and um, there's instead a switch and a diversion of, of funding. And a lot of that risks being very counterproductive because it, it may lead to an exacerbation of the reasons why people leave because it, it involves in a number of cases, uh, as we see on an ongoing basis, cooperation with parts of the state that are themselves repressive in other countries. Um, and I think underlying that is also the point that um, that the, the questioner raises as well. I mean, it's not just about investing in some of these positive efforts to try to tackle the causes of displacement. Above all, it would be good not to cause the displacement in the first place. Um, and to not be engaging, for instance, in military adventures that lead to displacement um, that create more conflict um, and so on. And again, some of that can seem quite hopeless if we look at what is often the direction of, of foreign policy. Um, I, I would say, again, it's, it's not hopeless in the sense that it, it's always a balance. There's always those who promote a particular approach and a particular uh, type of international relations. I mean, one that is supposedly self-interested, even though actually it's not. Um, and then uh, other uh, efforts to have a more enlightened and, and different approach. And something like the militarization, uh, military approaches versus approaches based on conflict prevention, conflict resolution and supporting peace are things that we've seen for hundreds of years. So um, I, I can only say it would be worse if we didn't have the resistance and the alternatives being put forward and the attempts to hold people accountable when uh, they, they do engage in different um, policies that lead to more displacement. And the EU, certainly currently, the UN perhaps less so, but EU foreign policy is currently a sort of battleground for these issues um, with attempts by states to who have shown very little interest in the idea of EU foreign policy and the new European External Action Service, uh, for instance, 
now trying to um, to get involved because they want to deploy those resources uh, to control migration. Um, and the big resistance, of course, comes from countries themselves and their societies. Thank you, uh, Catherine. I'll step in if I, while you're here, I had a question, Catherine, on, on your, your very interesting presentation when you're talking about the relationship between COVID and attitudes towards immigration. Um, and I think we, I think COVID's quite an important case, but I'll be, I think, could you tell us a little bit more about what you found in terms of the role of COVID in shaping, shaping people's perceptions of, you know, inclusion and belonging? Yeah, yes, I think it's very interesting. We've heard, of course, many of the negative impacts of COVID, and we should certainly not um, be complacent about those negative impacts. But there have also been positive changes, and that's included things like a certain um, relaxing of detention regimes for certain categories uh, of people with third country nationals within Europe, a certain expansion in rights to labour market access, for instance, um, a certain appreciation of the value and the extent to which all European countries are dependent on people originally from elsewhere, many of them have become citizens, some not, um, but for basic essential functions. Um, and then there was a very interesting public um, opinion surveys coming out showing that in the last few years, there's been a change in public opinion. And the one I'm referring to in particular is um, Pew Research, where in recent years, we've been a bit actually sceptical about some of the, the way they present migration issues. That's just a side note. I hope they're not listening. But um, um, but in the, the recent survey that was published two weeks ago, and it, it was uh, there was an article in the Financial Times on it as well. It was considered that important, but has shown across European countries that people have now a different attitude towards um, people from outside, originally from other places, saying that the percentage of people who consider that they uh, can integrate, that they can become citizens, that they are part of the country has gone up. Um, and, um, and there are a number of other positive uh, results in some of those measures that measure public opinion towards um, people from elsewhere. I mean, for, for the biggest way to describe it. So I, I think that that's, important, unexpected finding. Um, but if we look at in the long term, we see that the trend in public opinion is also in that direction across uh, almost all European countries, that there is more openness towards um, immigration and um, a sort of consistent support for refugee protection. What changes is when governments become dominated by political forces that have a very hostile approach. And that's unsurprising, I mean, uh, as well. Thank you so much for that, Catherine. It's very interesting. I'll certainly be looking to read more of those findings. I think now we're coming to the end of this um, event. Um, I would like to thank you all so much for your presentations and the, and the audience for your engagement and questions. And um, I think we've cut, uh, there's been a lot of discussion around different facets of this issue. 
uh, one of the terms that will really stick with me, I think when uh, Lucy said many states are still stuck in the exclusionary logics of the past, and I think that kind of really sums up um, the, the way that, you know, we need to think about how we approach these issues going forward. But I'd welcome uh, the panellists to um, reflect on that or anything else, and just perhaps everyone could just give some brief um, closing comments before we close the event in terms of their work or what they see is the, the, the most pressing issue going forward. Maybe, Catherine, if we start with you. Sure, thanks very much. Um, I, let, let me just conclude by saying that I, I think despite this bleak picture, um, there, there are alternatives and there are, are realistic alternatives. Sometimes it, um, they're actually more realistic than some of the this false solutions based on trying to uh, externalize everybody. Um, I'll conclude by reference to some of those that we put forward. I mean, we argue for compliance with existing standards on um, asylum. The standards are there in place. Instead of coming up with new and ever more unworkable uh, legal uh, changes to actually focus on what's already in place, uh, and then to deal with some of those immediate humanitarian crises as such, where there's a humanitarian imperative, for instance, on search and rescue. Um, there was one question that we haven't got into, but I'll refer the, the questioner to the plan that we launched today with Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International for the Central Mediterranean. And, and then we've got other alternatives, safe and legal routes for everybody, for those who need protection, but also legal migration for many other categories of people. Um, I think there was a question somewhere about what would be the one thing that you would change. I think a massive expansion in legal opportunities for movement um, for those who need protection and for those who don't, who want to move for other reasons that are perfectly valid. Um, and then in addition, we would talk about inclusion in Europe through rights, respect and regularization as an alternative to some of these restrictive approaches, which also create social tension. Um, and finally, foreign policy that looks at the causes of um, forced displacement, not at preventing migration, um, uh, given that it's very often refugees and people with protection who are, who are not able to, to move. And so working on those areas is a, an alternative way forward, even though sometimes it, it, it seems <laughs> quite a struggle to get um, to convince and persuade on those. Thank you so much, Catherine. Um, Lucy, I know you have to leave on time, so perhaps just some brief comments from you. Yeah, thanks. Um, I suppose my main concern is the sort of resilience of this current narrative around um, tackling smuggling. Uh, I think somebody else talked about it, tackling sm smuggling. So the policies create the crisis of people having to travel through unsafe means and risking their lives and often dying across various bodies of water um, within and on the edges of Europe. Uh, but then the policy, so it's like you create this crisis and then the policies you propose to solve them just make it worse. And so that, that it seems such a resilient narrative and it's something that's playing on my mind at the moment. But I think my overall view is that we need to deal with the actual fact of people um, existing and being in need and not 
spend so many millions, I don't know, does it go into billions just of so much money and so much time and so much effort trying to make them go away and invisibilize them and just like if maybe we can just make them disappear if we throw more money at it um and actually seek actual solutions for the situations or not solutions actually responses durable responses to the situation that presents itself and I feel like if the same amount of time and money could be devoted to thinking about dealing with that um, then we wouldn't see need to so perpetually create new crises. Um, yeah, that'd be my last thing. And I, and I do have to go, I'm afraid. Thank you so much, Lucy. It was a pleasure to hear from you. And thank you for all of your contributions. Masuma, um, any final comments from you? It would be great to hear. Yes, thank you very much. Um, uh, actually, most of the points there are already mentioned by the colleagues. But one thing I wanted to emphasize at the end is the participation or the inclusion of migrant and refugee-led organizations at policy discussions. And um, mostly the, the initiatives um, and the efforts that are um, focused on labor market integration, it's, uh, it, it, there is a need that there is more on the political participation of refugees and their social and cultural aspects as well. And there was a good discussion about this one um, a few minutes ago. And I'm also very happy to, to share um, uh, an essay or a working paper of mine on refugee-led organizations, their role in the um, policy um, discussions and policy contribution, some of the challenges and the opportunities that they have faced. Um, I have interviewed some of the refugee-led organizations across seven different EU member states and also some policy makers who also um, discussed about the demand for their contribution. I think that will be interesting for some of the um, participants and some of the questions that raised were related to this. And I thank you with that. Thank you, Masuma. We'll be, all be very interested to read your research and thank you for your contributions and the, I think the very unique insights that you've given at the kind of grassroots sort of family sort of community level. I think they're really important. Heaven, finally, any comments from you to just finish off the event? Yeah, thanks. I, I think, I mean, I, I think it's, this point's been made by several people already. It is really important to maintain hope and know that you can make a difference because most of us working in this area for many years, wouldn't do this unless we believe that what we do has the potential to change what's what's possible for people. But I suppose one of the things that I have said already, but would like to emphasize is I do think it's really important to tie back what's going on and has been going on for many years in relation to refugees into broader issues of social justice. I think, you know, seeing refugees as a particular or unique group is important. There are very particular issues affecting refugees, certainly in terms of their legal protection, but I think there are broader issues here of social justice and deep issues of structural inequality related to global north, global south, to issues of gender, to race, to, you know, these broader issues. Unless we're prepared to start talking about the problems of patriarchy, racism and global capitalism, then I think the possibility of actually addressing structurally some of the things that are happening is going to be very different. If we had those conversations, it would take very many more people with us because refugees are just one group of many groups that are actually um, you know, not benefiting well from the current structures within which we've decided to organize ourselves. And um, I, I think some of those bigger conversations would really help push forward this particular debate. 
Thank you, Heaven. I think that's a great place to end this event. And I'd like to, again, thank all of our speakers for all of their insights and their detailed presentations. And also to thank the European Institute and the 89 Initiative for organising this event and inviting me to chair, which I've enjoyed very much. And thank you to the audience for taking part and all of your very interesting questions. Thank you.